If you enjoy Champions for Children, be sure to check out the new podcast from Nemours Children's Health, Well Beyond Medicine. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts or at NemoursWellBeyond.org to continue hearing the stories of anything and everything related to the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. And now, the episode of Champions for Children you requested. Enjoy! You shouldn't have to tell every new doctor you see about your medical history or what prescriptions you're taking. You shouldn't have to repeat costly tests. All that information should be stored securely in a private medical record so that your information can be tracked from one doctor to another, even if you change jobs, even if you move, even if you have to see a number of different specialists. That's just common sense. Welcome to the Nemours Champions for Children podcast. I'm Carol Vassar, and that's the voice of former President Barack Obama in 2009, speaking to the American Medical Association about the Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Health Act, known as HITECH. HITECH was enacted as part of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009, which in and of itself was a huge effort to fight the effects of the Great Recession of 2008. HITECH's specific aim was to promote the adoption and meaningful use of health information technology. Paper medical records were on the way out. Securely exchanged electronic medical records available to patients and authorized providers were on the way in. Such improvements to the healthcare delivery system were already on the radar of Sumnamore's associates well before high tech, including Dr. David West. Since 1996, Dr. West has served as Nemours' chief medical informatics officer. He and I talked recently about the evolution of health information technology, both across the nation and here at Nemours. I'm a general pediatrician by training, and I've been with Nemours since 1989. Came directly from my general academic pediatric fellowship at Hopkins and have been here ever since. Over the decades that I've been at Nemours, I have grown into this chief medical informatics officer position, and it has certainly become a full-time enterprise over the years from when it began. So what does a chief informatics, medical informatics officer do? What is your day-to-day? So with the advent of computers and information technology over the last decades, there has always been a a vision and a promise that computers and information technology would bring about a, a better and healthier life for patients and our communities. And the issue was that simply rolling it out didn't necessarily mean that it happened. It needed guidance. And I was fortunate to sort of have skills in both the clinical domain and in the technical domain that tries to really make sure that we capitalize on the promised synergies and not run into many of the unintended consequences that are certainly possible. It's really about that synergy, that synergy between technology and clinical practice to achieve a better outcome. So let's back up a little bit. When you decided you were going to go into medicine, You went into pediatrics. Did you think you would be practicing for the majority of your career? Are you still practicing today? I uh, stopped practicing about 10 years ago. I can tell you that when I started my career, this was not even on the radar. 
I thought I would practice in an academic setting. I loved teaching. Uh, I was teaching residents. I, through the eighties and nineties, was very involved in the academic general pediatric program at Nemours and particularly in primary care, uh, which was where my fellowship focused. But as a fellow, I became involved in clinical research, realized that I had some skill and aptitude in data. I am a little bit of a data geek, and that seemed to really fit well with this role as it grew and emerged at Nemours. And it really emerged in 1996, I believe, when you took on the role that you currently have. How did that come about? I have to say I was in the right place at the right time. I was blessed to have then CEO of the organization, Nemours' first real CEO, who was a bit of a geek himself, in fact, and liked to lead with technology from his own desk. In other words, he would usually get the latest and greatest. And when he liked it, he said, all right, everybody else should get it too. But he was a smart guy and he realized that electronic health records was the wave of the future long before anybody was talking about it. It was a backroom exercise for a bunch of geeks, you know, who were trying to make it happen. He, as a non-physician, saw it as a path forward and decided that he needed a clinician to lead the organization's journey. And I happened to, like I said, I just happened to be in the right place. I had already become known as somebody who we had an electronic order entry system at the time. I had become known as a person who could work with the IT side of the house and make it work better. So I got a call to fly to Florida, meet with the CEO, and it was done. Right place, right time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it was done in 1996. I don't think many people had heard of electronic health records, except for perhaps some of the backroom geeks, as you referred to yourself mm -hmm. and several others. Talk about the EMR that was developed at that time, that was specific to Nemours, wasn't it? It was kind of homegrown. I would say that the electronic health record, it wasn't homegrown, but it was more of an electronic order entry system. It was not a documentation system. The one we had started in NIH. We were probably the second big user of it. It was what we call a green screen application with light pens where you take your pen and you point it at the screen and you pick things. So the whole graphical user interface that we are so accustomed to today that, that Apple brought to the forefront, but certainly Microsoft picked up and everybody just takes a second nature. That was not the way that users interacted with computers back in those days. We took advantage of what was happening in the general information technology industry, conquering the barriers of reusability, getting people to actually want to interface and not just the geeks, getting people who would interact with a computer required a much more facile, much more intuitive setting. And I think that's what the graphical user interfaces that Apple and Microsoft brought forward did at the time. And we took advantage of that. And the industry of electronic health records took advantage of it as they converted. And it was a something of a, a cultural change. And cultural change is always slow to take place, but it sped up ever so slightly in 2009. Many people may remember 2008, there was a recession. 2009, there was this big recovery act that came out. And part of that was the High Tech Act. Tell us about that. That really set a stage. It sure did. Um, and I'm going to go back a little further. I did, when we really got excited in this field was when George W. Bush in the State of the Union first made comment of the promise of electronic health records and how it was going to influence the outcomes in the healthcare industry. 
By computerizing health records, we can avoid dangerous medical mistakes, reduce costs, and improve care. So all of a sudden, we were sort of not in the back rooms anymore. People were talking about it. But what the High Tech Act brought in the Obama administration was a financial backing that really promoted EHRs. In fact, recognized that one of the biggest barriers to adoption of EHRs and health information technology was capital. Everybody realized it took a lot of capital to do it. Nobody was going to try to spend it on their own. And so basically the High Tech Act brought forward the idea of if you build the EHR and you do it well, or you do it with these outcomes, you can get money back to offset the capital. And that is when you really saw the curve of adoption across the country really jump. For right or wrong, you know, people always were struggling with, well, do we have to do all of this? And there were a lot of rules that people had to to obey to get their reimbursement, but it certainly did the trick. It really was the catalyst. And part of that was not just taking a computer, sticking it on a desk and having it sit there and gather dust. It really was the meaningful use of EHRs. Talk about that. Yes. uh, I think I, a lot of people complain about meaningful use, but I always applauded it because I think it married what the national health agenda items were to achieve and made sure that people who implemented an EHR would in fact be supporting the health prevention initiatives such as smoking, something as simple as do we assess smoking on a regular basis as just like a part of vital signs? How do we measure heights and weights on people? How do we measure obesity and prevention of cardiac disease in adults? These were major national health care agenda items that needed to be, they would have felt a failure, I think, if they did all this EHR and there was nothing put in there that would in fact actually achieve what you're trying to achieve. Having the structure is not enough. You have to have the processes and the quality outcomes that you're trying to drive towards. That's what it's all about. What were the barriers? What were some of the barriers in Moore's face, especially going from paper to your first electronic data system to where you are today? Well, you mentioned the culture shift. I remember in the early days that I confronted a common perception that fingers on a keyboard was beneath the role of many physicians. You know, that was something that somebody else did. It was not something that a practicing physician did themselves. They had people to do that. And that was a quite the barrier as we went through it. And what we did to compensate for that was we really tried in the cases where people were, were that averse to give them their old documentation techniques, which often was dictation. We even allowed, we grandfathered this back in the day in primary care, you really didn't dictate as a norm in primary care. You wrote your notes. And if people insisted at the beginning on doing that because they were behind or the thing was, we couldn't, we couldn't drive them to burn out by having to type out all their notes, you know, that would have been counterproductive. And so we gave them the out. We said, if you want to write your note, write your note and we will scan it and we will move on. We afforded as many methods of documentation that we could afford, including traditional ones. My ace in the hole was generational. 
because I saw the younger generation coming up. This was not going to be a permanent state of affairs and we would grow into it. But I wasn't willing to simply sacrifice our knowledgeable, wise physicians who really knew what they were doing. That, that would have been uh, a real error, I think. And the Moors was quite good at being allowing that flexibility. I do know of other organizations that really were rigid that said you can't dictate anymore. You know, once you went to the EHR, you can't handwrite and you cannot dictate in your traditional manner. You have to use templates. That, I think, was an error. I think there was no necessity for that. Our ability to digest data, granular data, wasn't yet on a par with what people were trying to ask physicians to do by making everything they enter so granular. It, it just wasn't there. So if you weren't going to give them the benefit in the end, it was hard to make them put all that effort in at the beginning. I'm glad you brought up the generational point. I'm guessing that you had no health information technology training in your medical school years or even in your internships and fellowships. It didn't exist. It didn't exist. It didn't exist. There does was it, no program. Does it exist today? And are we seeing people coming out of, young men and women coming out of medical school who are ready, willing, and able to take this on? Yes, we are definitely seeing people interested in this as a complement to their practice. We are seeing programs emerge. I think the it still is true that as as recently as four or five years ago, many people go through residency and do, did not know that this was an avenue of fellowship or academic growth. It is becoming more and more prevalent. It is now board certified. You can be, become board certified in health informatics. I finally went back and got my master's in 2016 after it now had a formal program to to go with this training and expertise. I think it is a wonderful compliment for those that have the aptitude and the interest in this area. It's a wonderful compliment to clinical practice. There is so much more to the EHR and so much more potential for EHR to serve not only the clinical staff, but the patients ultimately. Are we seeing finally the, um, the state exchanges being stood up and tell people what a state exchange is? I'm, I'm talking inside baseball here. So Yes, this has been one of the greatest areas of growth during my years at Nemours has been in the area of health information exchange. I'd like to think that Nemours has actually been leading the way in many ways in, in both the Philadelphia community, the Florida community, really working with large organizations, sort of telling them how to do it. The states do have health information exchanges. The most readily known is the vaccine registries, which of course is very big in pediatrics. And one of the earliest achievements that we had was every time somebody gets a vaccine now automatically goes to the state registry, which everybody of course can tap into. And we now have it going the other way where the data that vaccines were given from the state come to us so that we don't have to worry about transcribing all the vaccines for a child who comes from one practice to another. But bigger than that, we are now much better at moving images from organization to organization, historical records, uh, notes from organization to organization continues to develop. It's not perfect, but it is absolutely true that I, I hear from physicians frequently about oh man, I, I did, wouldn't have never known that these things happened to this child at this organization unless we had this health information exchange. Even politicians, their vision was the idea that if I order an x-ray, why would I order an x-ray if it was already done at another organization? And one of the barriers that they recognized or latched onto was how do we make it so that when you order an x-ray, you know that 
that happen somewhere else that don't need to do it. How, why waste that money? And we are really making strides in making those kinds of images available readily so that people don't duplicate care and say, and really become more efficient. And all of that sounds like to the layperson might sound very simple. Oh, I'll just send these x-rays through email. Not quite the way it works. There's security to be considered. Talk about how I think HIPAA was amended under high tech and, and how much security there is when it comes to the exchange, the electronic exchange of medical records. Yes, I, I think that the, the security around encrypted data has been a big advance. I mean, everything is or should be if you're compliant with HIPAA. But I think any organization worth their salt now is is heavily encrypted on the highways of exchange. So between, you know, in the pipe that connects one organization to another and we're moving data through that pipe, it doesn't do any good for anybody to tap into that pipe because it's it's gibberish, because it's all encrypted. And so nobody can tap into that from a security point of view. And we spend a lot of time and use algorithms to make sure that patients on each end are matched appropriately. We have algorithms that use more than just name and date of birth, but many other factors in the patient's demographic makeup to make sure we match with high confidence so that one patient's record doesn't accidentally fall into another patient's record. So it's probably less likely to happen now that we're in the digital form, then perhaps with the paper form mixing up, maybe Bob Smith and Bob Smith, Robert Smith and Robert Smith, files. Correct. Since we are better able to use many of those other data points in confirming, I think we do a better job than we used to have in paper. Talk about the patients and how this has really benefited them. Yes. As we rolled out the electronic health record, uh, we realized that the people that needed to to benefit. Certainly my first responsibility was to my community of physicians, but we quickly realized that the decision makers most of the time for somebody's health is not our physicians. It's the caregivers at home, parents and patients. And we were early to adopt a portal that allowed patients to both ask about what was in their record, see what was in their record, and ask questions of their providers as a result, even to request appointments and all of the other good stuff that can come along with a portal. But what the end result is that the relationship that a patient enjoys with not just the physician, but the entire health system becomes richer and more ongoing and achieves a better and, and richer dialogue to guide their health at home. In the old days, you know, you used to have these islands of intense interaction separated by long periods of time when the caregiver was on their own. And then they would come back and tell you, oh, how did it all go? We need to achieve a situation where these interactions can be more continuous, our relationships more nurturing over time so that people really are guided in making their healthcare decisions, particularly in chronic disease. It's been a real boon to chronic disease management where guidance is needed often. Uh, and frequently, and nobody needs to wait on the phone waiting for somebody to get uh, available, you shouldn't be able to ask your question and have it responded to in a reasonable amount of time without having to say, yeah, sorry, we're, we're leaving it on the voicemail and that's no good. Absolutely. So nurturing that relationship both in real life and in the digital world, they kind of complement one another very nicely. 
There is something, and this, I think when we were doing the pre-interview, I mentioned this would be a whole podcast unto itself, and maybe we'll bring you back for this, but there's a something that kind of underlays or overlays EHR or intersects with EHRs, and that's Clinical Decision Support System, CDSS. For the layperson, tell us what that is. Yes. So that's a big word. It's got a lot under it. There's a many, many, many forms of clinical decision support. The most classical form of clinical decision support is what's called the pop-up alert. Dr. X wants to do something and up pops an alert says, no, 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 you should do something else. We have learned that that can be really problematic if we overuse that vehicle for clinical decision support. I'd prefer to to talk about clinical decision support as bringing the best information and most timely information to the point of decision-making so that the best decisions can be made. And there are many vehicles we used to bring that information to the forefront. It does not have to be a pop-up alert. And I think to your point, it's, it's a matter of the decision being made with the physician and the family or the clinical staff and the family, it's not being made by some computer out there. That's correct. We're just trying to give the physician and the family all of the information that's available to best make a decision. So really they have in front of them, okay, you're going to give them this medication, up pops an alert. Oh, they're already taking X medication that will interact with Y in this way. So it'll tell you right on the screen. Is that kind of what we're looking at? Yes, absolutely. And it's getting to be even more advanced. I think in the future, you will start to see that interaction be with the genetic makeup of the patient so that we know that certain genes react to certain medicines in a certain way. And if you have a gene that makes that medicine not work, that's an important piece of data for the physician to, to use to make a decision about appropriate therapy. So I, yes, I think that the medication interaction that you described, the medication allergy interaction, medication pregnancy interaction, all of these factors are available to be presented to the physician. You talked about the future a little bit. Let's talk about the future of electronic health records, clinical decision support. Ten years ago, it was meaningful use in standing up EHRs in primary care and in systems, hospital systems. Where are we today and where will we be in 10 years? Well, I think the one thing, the one dimension we haven't covered yet, which is blossoming, especially in the pandemic era, is telehealth. This ability to interact with practitioners remotely and really achieve in most settings, not all, most settings, the care that is needed is easier for the family, more comfortable. They're in their home environment. The physician is, of course, able to do this from their environment. I will share one, an one set of anecdotes. We do, we do a fair amount of mental health uh, psychiatry for children. And we had children driving up from Southern Delaware, which is about a two-hour drive, to get their prescription refilled because in the old days, you had to have a handwritten prescription for a prescription to get a refill for a controlled substance. No longer. So now that physician from two hours away can do their video conference. The doctor can say, yes, you need to continue this medication. And now we can e-prescribe the pers prescription. How much does it mean to a family not to spend four hours on the road 
to have a 30-minute visit and a refill. I think we're going to see a real blossom of telehealth and, and many vehicles for having that occur. In some settings, it might need some assistance locally. Maybe there's a local place where uh, an assistant, an MA or a nurse can help with some of the physical exam components or use some of the otoscopy or eye exams that can be then transmitted to the physician without the physician being present. Really creates a lot of opportunity for serving underserved populations. Dr. David West is Nemours Chief Medical Informatics Officer. He is based in the Delaware Valley. All things digital, just part of what it means to go well beyond medicine here at Nemours. We know you're going well beyond medicine in your role as a Nemours associate, and this podcast is your chance to tell others about those efforts. Email your podcast ideas to podcast at Nemours.org so we can schedule you and your team to be on the podcast. Interviews are done remotely and at your convenience. That email again is podcast at Nemours.org. Thank you, as always, to our podcast production team, Peter Adebi, Allison Kraft, and Deborah Griffin. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions in Turner's Falls, Massachusetts. The podcast is available on Nemoorsnet and the Nemours Now app, along with your favorite podcast app and your smart speaker. On behalf of Dr. David West, I'm Carol Vassar, and we thank you for listening to this edition of the Nemours Champions for Children podcast. Until next time, please stay safe, stay well, and thank you for all you do for the children and families we serve.